Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, March 25th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a deep dive into the war in Ukraine with a Mississippi international relations expert. And we talk food and family with Jackson-based Top Chef contestant Nick Wallace. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Tate Reeves has proposed a new tax cut plan for lawmakers to adopt amidst an ongoing standoff between the House and Senate on the issue. All this as the deadline to pass a tax cut looms. MPB's Kobe Vance reports. Members of the Mississippi House of Representatives signed a report on Wednesday outlining a plan to slowly eliminate the state's income tax. But Governor Tate Reeves says the 20 years it would take to see that tax completely phased out would be too long. He is proposing a new plan that would reduce individual income taxes by 30% and eliminate the tax within eight years. If we go from 5 to 3.5% in the 2023 calendar year, that is approximately $600 million. That is less than half of the $1.2 billion surplus that the legislature's own experts say they will have next year. Governor Reeves says his plan would not be affected by rising inflation rates or other potential losses in state revenue. His approach does not reduce any additional taxes, like gas or grocery taxes. Speaker of the House Philip Gunn spoke with the Associated Press yesterday about this new tax cut proposal. He says his chamber passed legislation earlier in the session that aligned with the governor's new plan, but Senate lawmakers objected. The difficulty, as y'all all know, is where are the votes? And while I appreciate him proposing something. Again, we've been asking for over a year now for a proposal. Here we are two days before deadline, and we see the first proposal from the governor. Uh, My question is, where are his votes for his votes? If lawmakers do not pass a bill to eliminate the state income tax before the deadline, Governor Reeves says he would consider calling a special session to pass the bill. Cubby Vance, MPB News. Coming up, a deep dive into the war in Ukraine. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today 
at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The war in Ukraine is now in its second month. Here in Mississippi, political leaders from both parties have rallied to show support, most of it symbolic, for the Ukrainian people. The state Senate has also resolved to formally condemn the Russian military, and the legislature has severed business ties with Russia. For many of us, the geopolitics that underpin the conflict remain difficult to fully grasp. In an effort to better understand the war in context, we spoke with Vasubjit Banerjee. He's a political science professor at Mississippi State University. Russia made territorial claims on Ukraine uh, based on uh, the rights of the Russian ethnic group in a couple of areas, in about two or three different areas in Ukraine, bordering Russia, where Russia said that there was a Russian, um, you know, which is Russian-dominated areas, and Russia should acquire those areas. This is uh, the logic that Russia used was directly similar to the logic that Germany used in the 1930s to assimilate areas like or include areas like Austria, a country, Sudetenland uh, from Czechoslovakia. And Germany made similar claims or never really sort of talked about it. It's not talked. It's less talked about is in Poland as well. So Russia made these claims. Now, Russia has, this is not the first time that Russia has made these claims on Ukraine. As we know, the conflict, there was a first round of conflict in 2014 with uh, undeclared Russian troops, the little green men. And Russia did occupy parts of Ukraine, uh, specifically Donetsk and Luhansk, as well as in, in Crimea. Now, there is a norm that Russia is violating from 1945 onwards, there's been a norm that large states will not annex territories of weaker states, or powerful states will not annex territories of weaker states. Who enforces that? It has been enforced, ironically, by both the Soviet Union and the, the United States during the Cold War. And despite some exceptions, it has been followed by most every country in the world. Now, the invasions have occurred, rebellions have been incited, coups have been conducted, but actual territories of weaker states have not been taken over. And this territorial annexation taboo, this, this norm, goes back to 1945, because once you open that Pandora's box, you are going back to the 1930s with nuclear weapons this time. And I think that there was a realization even among the Soviet Union. And there was partitioning of Poland after the war, which changed Poland's, uh, you know, the, the, the area that Poland occupied, you know, that, that, that Poland existed in. Uh, but that was the last set of major territorial changes where one large country walked into weaker, um, you know, weaker neighbors and decided to change their geography. Uh, change their territorial boundaries. Because basically that's land grabs. Um, are you surprised? Yes, that's exactly what it is. Are you surprised at the fortitude of Ukrainians to try and hold on to their country? Yes, I am, ma'am. I, I have no words. If you had told me 
that the war would last this long. About three months ago, I would have laughed at you. I expected the war to last about 72 hours. How long can both sides hold out like this? My theory is that Russia can and will win the war. But it is fighting two different things. It is fighting Ukraine and it is fighting time. Russia cannot win at this time the time element. It is fighting both time and it's fighting the Ukrainians. It not only has to defeat the Ukrainians, which it can and it probably will, but it has to do so on time. And time is against the Russians because the sanctions are biting. The Russian economy has tanked. I mean, it's no puns intended. It's just really crashed. Uh, there will be mass unemployment very soon. So protests and so on will rise. Morale is low among the troops. Generals, um, the attrition rate for generals right now is about five out of 20 generals on the field. Five generals out of 20 on the field um, who have been assigned to this operation um, and one paramilitary general from the Kadyrov forces, uh, the Chechen forces, pro-Russian Chechen forces. So no matter if they win or lose, their image is ruined. Would that be fair to say? Their image is ruined. The economy has tanked. And frankly speaking, they can win militarily. But they cannot win the war now. What would it take for NATO to put troops on the ground? I don't know. I have thought about it. I have discussed it with people. I do not think NATO should put troops on the ground. Uh, because the Russians want that. They want a confrontation with NATO. That way they can delegitimize uh, Ukraine and say, well, Ukraine was just a cat's paw, you know, NATO was this NATO all the time. It's not really Ukraine at all. And sort of galvanize the Russian nation behind the faltering Putin regime. NATO would mean that nuclear weapons would then be on the table. And I do not want or foresee a situation where um, a thermonuclear exchange would be something that um, that President Biden or President Macron of France uh, would contemplate. Professor Banerjee, is there anything that I didn't ask you that's important to point out? This is such an, a complicated and in-depth issue, but is there something that really needs to be said? Two things. One, Russia and Ukraine, especially Ukraine, is a wheat supplier to the world. And right now, Ukraine is not producing wheat. Which means that countries that buy Ukrainian wheat in Africa, in Asia, parts of Latin America, are going to face massive food shortages very soon. And we need to be aware of that, and people need to address that. So that's part one. Part two, Russia is one of the largest defense equipment suppliers to the world. Most of its clients are in Asia and Africa, but there are a couple of clients in Latin America, Venezuela, Peru, so on and so forth. We need to be aware that if Russia cannot supply the, the, the defense equipment from fighter jets to tanks, conflicts that are frozen might kick up.
because if a country thinks that the other side doesn't have uh, adequate weapons, or if a rebel group thinks that the government can no longer bring the weapons to bear, they will take advantage of the situation. That's just a sort of a norm in international relations. So something definitely has to be done about that as well. And I hope the Biden administration has a task force dedicated to understanding these things, that Russia is a great power. It has influence still across the world. And when, you, when it's involved in a, in a conflict in which it's bogged down, where we don't know what the outcome will be, uh, we really don't, it will affect a large number of countries across the world. Uh, India is the largest uh, Russian defense importer, defense equipment importer. China is another top defense importer. All of them will be affected. And I hope the Biden administration has a task force for understanding food shortages and uh, these kinds of defense equipment related shortfalls across the world. Well, again, Professor, I thank you so much. And it was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Still ahead, we talk food and family with top chef contestant Nick Wallace. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi edition. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Nick Wallace is a Jackson-based restaurateur and a mainstay of reality TV cooking competitions. He's previously competed on Food Network's Cutthroat Kitchen and Chopped. Now he's part of the new season of Top Chef on Bravo. He tells us the recognition he's received is the result of decades of hard work. Well, I have been a certified chef since I was 23 years old. I'm 42 now. So about 21 years. I've been in the restaurant industry since I was 16. Grew up on the farm. Um, so that really was like a chef life in a sense, slash farmer. So really, I really took it very serious in my 30s, you know, when I was about 30 years old, that this was going to be something that I would do for the rest of my life. And at that point there, that's when I kind of made my, uh, my journey map. I have a journey map that uh, the things that I want to accomplish. And I just set my goals and and I try to go after them as best as I can. Now, I understand that you bring a Southern take on cooking. Can you talk about that a little bit? So my take on, on, on food in general, I grew up, you know, on the farm in Edwards, Mississippi. So I was used to the pickling, all the preservation of food, um, all the slow cooks of meat. So, I, you know, my thing is, as coming out into my career, I still boast um, everything that I do and the flavors that I was taught by my family, but I put, you know, great technique that is owned by, like, the modern culture. You know, Mississippi has, like, one of those places that we have certain identities that reference soul food in a sense. And I think it's a lot more sophisticated than that, and I think you should apply a little bit more respect when you say anything about soul food because um, things really have to come from your heart. It's just like any recipe. You can get two, three chefs cooking the same recipe, and they're probably going to be all different. But you'll be able to identify the one that really speaks more volumes that that was cooked with care. 
for me, everything that I've learned throughout my journey involves, you know, French techniques, slow food. And when I apply like the enriched culture of flavor that my family have taught me throughout my whole life, you know, it comes out to be pretty explosive when, when, when I touch food and, and I just see it in a way that just like the, the gumbo in a sense that I created, you know, at the Civil Rights Museum. And it's something that Mississippi, you know, has like a strong identity. And I just think we should own that. So when I cook, I own my experience. You have a catering business. And as you just mentioned there, you operate a cafe at the two museums. Is that keeping you busy? How do you have time to compete in these uh, competitions? I try to... I try to keep, you know, as many great people around me as I can, um, the ones that, that can want to be able to develop their voice, but also um, know and really, you know, buy in to where I want my journey to, to go. And so the people that, that is on the team, um, they get it. And uh, that's, the, that's the, you know, the reason why I can leave off to do these certain things. Um, because it's a bigger picture. It's, it's, um, they push, they push me to do it. It's, it's a huge sacrifice, but we get it done. And the good thing is when I started off cooking, I jumped in the, in the freestanding restaurants and then I went to, um, hotels for a while. So the hotel aspect taught me a lot of table etiquette. It taught me how to be out in front of, of, you know, in front of the kitchen and be a spokesperson and public speaker. But it also taught me how to take on a lot. So I have that rare ability to do a little bit more than the average person. Tell us, your first competition, what was it? And was your heart racing the whole time? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my, my, my heart was doing a little bit more in racing. Um, I'm glad that I had, a, I think it was a nurse that was on my plane uh, when I was headed to uh, Hollywood. And I, that was Cutthroat Kitchen in 2013. I went there to do first ever with Alton Brown, and it was just, um, it was one of those things I didn't know what to expect, but it was like a, a cooking game show in a way. And I went there, tried to, you know, not really fit in, but I just tried to see who I be. I, I love people, love making friends, but it definitely gives you one of those things that you got to protect yourself in a way because you can let people kind of outplay you, and you have to just do a little bit more, and it's Everything about that show is sabotaged. So uh, I'm definitely loving uh, my journey right now on Top Chef because it definitely doesn't involve sabotaging. So Cutthroat Kitchen was something that I was not sure exactly what was going to happen. But, um, yeah, after that first round, I was I was kind of set and ready to go. So there's some mental gamemanship there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's very mental. And you talked about your journey. The awards the money that you earn on all of these competitions, you say you give back to the community. How are you doing that? Yeah, I have a nonprofit um, called Creativity Kitchen, and it was started about seven years ago with me just getting into the public schools, teaching the cafeteria workers on cooking things in a different way. And then I started bringing in kids, getting their opinion, and getting them thoughts about different dishes. And I successfully, you know, I've done it for this long. And, um, doing summer programs, just stay mentoring is pretty much what it is. No matter if it's, you know, I think a cafeteria worker inside needs to be, you know, kind of elevated as a chef. They should be able to 
touch that food in a certain kind of way and put love in it because it's feeding the kids. So I put that money into mentorship, uh, the summer program, because we honestly need more chefs of color here in Mississippi, and we need them to continue to change the game and getting their voice heard. One thing I didn't ask you, though, is about your training, because folks are going to want to know how you learned to be such a magnificent chef. So my, my grandmother is the, uh, both of my grandmothers is the best chef that I'll ever know. And they're both uh, still here on this world, and they have taught me so much, and that's how my journey started. And throughout that, I met some wonderful chefs to get, you know, be up under them, and for them to kind of take me under their wing. So I went to hotels, and I started working for Marriott when I was 20 years old. And the great thing about it is, I, uh, by the time I was 22, I was already executive sous chef. So when I was 23, I was I was executive chef and then coming into being a corporate chef. So it was really fast paced. So I learned how to actually stay successful and make money and 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 be able to train and, and bring other people like that, other chefs. So that right there reshaped me. Hotels really reshaped my my idea of what I thought a chef, you know, should be and could be. I didn't need help really showing me how to put flavors together. I needed you know, reshaping of, you know, the business side of things. So after my hotel journey, and it took about 15, 16 years, I was ready for the world at that point. Well, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. Congratulations for all the strides that you have made in your profession. We're just excited to be able to share you with our listeners. Thank you very much. Great to talk with you. Nick Wallace is a contestant on season 19 of Top Chef. The show airs Thursday nights on Bravo. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's the Gestalt Gardener. Then at 10, it's Next Stop Mississippi. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. We'll see you Monday morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Have a great weekend.